This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. This is Nabil Mahmood, your host for Nomad Futurist, not from Hawaii today. I am in California. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host, still in Brooklyn, New York. And this is Michelle Hyde of Seattle, Washington. Michelle, thank you for joining us on the Nomad Futures podcast. Glad to be here. Tell our audience uh, a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and where are you at in your career? Sure, absolutely. So I work here in Seattle, Washington. I have a boutique uh, consulting firm. I'm really a technology solutions consultant and trusted advisor to my clients. Uh, My organization does three things uh, for our targeted clients. We really help with uh, uh, technology assessments, evaluating environments, um, getting a baseline of, of a client environment. We help with general technology strategy and uh, such things as cloud migration strategies, security posture evaluations, and and dare I say, digital transformation efforts. And three, we also conduct global sourcing efforts uh, for our clients based on the assessment and the strategy efforts that we gather in those engagements. Michelle, you forgot to mention about Cloud Girls. Tell us a little bit about it. So Cloud Girls, all females, about 50 of us now, it's a think tank for uh, technology. All of us are senior leaders in technology. Um, I have been serving on the board for eight years now and uh, also am on the advisory and and officer committee as well. It's just a very dynamic and very fluid organization. We do a lot of education and a lot of philanthropic efforts to really um, accentuate the STEM and STEAM efforts uh, throughout the communities in which we serve. Yeah, that's that's outstanding. So we have known each other for golly, uh, not to age anyone here, but yes. uh, for, for a while. Long enough. Tell us a little bit, how did you get engaged in the tech world? I started this, this industry when I was 19 years old. I didn't know anything. I was a, a took a temp job and I never left this industry and I, I would, you know, looking back, I would never believe that as a teenager, I, I would have believed that I was going to be in this industry for decades and make it my career. But it has just been an amazing journey, really. You know, through my career, I've uh, worked really hard. I get along with a lot of different uh, types of people, and I found myself easily and often promoted. And uh, through that, I really fell in love with the notion of solution selling. So I found myself in sales and very dynamic to be able to have a conversation with a client um, about their business and in turn um, have measurable impacts on their business, whether it be you know time to market or market ex- expansion or cost containment, optimization. I mean, a lot of these things I've done throughout my career, but I really, I really enjoy you know taking a look at the client evolution and being a part of that effort. What did you think you were going to do when uh, you know when you were when you were young? I mean, you started at 19 years old, right? So uh, obviously, technology wasn't uh, wasn't in your plan initially. But uh, what what path did you think you would take? And you know, it's kind of kind of interesting to see the transition of where people think they're going to go, and then somehow they they weave their way to uh, to to. to, to technology? Yeah, I'd always started in kind of that customer service aspect. I was um, a customer service representative and then a customer service manager. 
Um, I was a retention specialist, which also was a customer service for disgruntled customers. Um, I did collections uh, in this industry as well. But then I was kind of faced with, did you want to be the you know senior manager and customer service here in the greater Puget Sound region, or did you want to move into sales? Because those are the only two promotion areas that you have to go into. And I said, Oh, I'm in customer service. I've been doing sales anyway. I've been cleaning up all the salespeople's work. I think that uh, I think I'll go into sales. And sure enough, I went in and I absolutely loved it. I loved being out in the field, um, sitting, you know, eyeball to eyeball with a client and really finding, digging in and understanding their environments and trying to suit solutions to them. So was any of this work in, in the tech space? No, telecommunications always. I worked for a CLEC, so I was competing, you know, head to head with the with the big, you know, companies like Quest or CenturyLink or uh, those type of companies. And I, I love being the underdog in that respect, and and uh, being the alternative to um, the the big, the big ogres on the street, you know, so that, that was always a fun thing. Um, but I, I had always been in telecommunications up until, um, I joined a hosting company, um, called Genuity. And that was a blast from the past, ultimately acquired by level three. I think it was one of their first acquisitions of their many, many, many. And I loved the idea of hosting. It was, uh, it was so new back in 1999, 2000, that people were saying, wait a minute, you want me to take my infrastructure and give it to you to put where for you to do what to? <laughs> so the notion of outsourcing that effort, the, the lifeblood of a company was something very new. And I wouldn't say it, it took root real quick, um, but it certainly set, planted those seeds for the next, the next decade for sure. Did you see any, uh, did you see any headwinds you know, in the fact that you were selling things that had like a lot of technology undertones. I mean, the process of selling is is selling, right? Your people are buying from you more than they're buying the the product or service in general. But obviously, you're selling things that have you know significant you know technology um, components behind them. Uh, did you find it difficult to kind of ex- excuse that uh, screaming in the background? The world we live in today. Um, did you find that to be um, you know a daunting task, or or were you able to kind of absorb that information uh, pretty quickly? You know, when you work for an individual organization, uh, you have single service that you sell, so you can master that pretty quickly. I would say that in today's age, one with the myriad of different services that are out there um, and just how it's truly mushroomed um, with all these different new technologies, um, this much more daunting today than it was back then because you go from technology to technology. That's a, that's a linear jump. Um, now we're in a mushrooming environment with so many different technologies. And so having an awareness and understanding generally about all of these technologies and where they fit in the ecosystem with your client is much more daunting task today than, than ever before, for sure. Do you think it was helpful that you were there essentially when the industry started? I mean, the fact that, you know, there was no, there was, there was no resource for you to use. I mean, you're basically like, n- nobody can claim back then to have been a thought leader in hosting because there was no hosting. Right. So, you know, you're kind of defining what the industry is in, in, in your own words, contextually. Yeah, I mean, so having that um, lineage, we'll say, in the industry um, and, a, you know, the, the historical viewpoint and the current viewpoint, 
um, you can see how um, the the jog has gone, I guess, in the technology and how it's how it's really evolved. The precursor to that is. I have always come back to business requirements. So regardless of the technology that's out there, it could be the next generation of, of items. Um, the, the reality is that businesses are trying to achieve a goal and technology then becomes a tool for them to get there. And so it always has to come back to these foundational questions regarding business and what they're trying to achieve, um, how they're trying to expand, um, where, where the pain points are so that you can then suit the right solution in there. Looking back at the early part of your career, would you do anything different? No, I think that if I were to say one thing, I wish that I had had about, um, you know, a swimming pool more of uh, confidence and um, wasn't risk adverse. I think that whether it's women in business coming up or whether you're shy originally because I was super shy in high school people would never believe that knowing me now but uh, but I was super shy and so have, having that confidence to be able to say um, I, I want that next role or I want to start my own company I wish I had started my own company 10 years earlier um, but uh, you know things things happen in their right time but I think the confidence issue is that that would be the only thing that I was really missing in my youth <laughs> and the early part of my career. Is that an advice that you would give the younger generation as well to, sure. to establish and work more in confidence? And besides that, what else would you tell them to look into? Yeah, mentorship for sure. Um, find those that you have a... Um, that you're in awe of, people you look up to, um, people that have achieved things that you want to achieve. Surround yourself with the right people that you want to emulate and um, make friends with them and run ideas past them and gain that confidence so that you can really push forward in, in the endeavors that you want to pursue. And that's the thing, you know, over the course of yeah, nearly a dozen of these podcasts that we've done so far, there's this consistent point that's made, which is that the youth can't be fearful of expressing their own gaps in knowledge or being afraid to put themselves out there in such a way. And I think this this current generation is actually, you know, more confident than any generation before, just in terms of their, and some of that probably has to do with access to social media and and just, you know, media culture in, in general. But the the phrase, you know, life is a confidence game, um, it has never been truer, I, I found. And, you know, I'm in this, a similar position. I, I didn't get confidence until I lost all my hair, which is just crazy because I should have had confidence back then. But you hit the nail on the head with that characteristic as, a, as something that people should focus on. Technology, like you mentioned earlier, is a constant evolving world that we live in. And there is a level of complexity. So what do you do and what would you suggest the younger generation to look into as they're getting to these space? Because you can't be talking fluff got to know what you're talking about so how do you personally keep up on everything or areas that you're involved in and what would you tell the younger generation to look into in terms of advice of folks entering into this technology world i say buckle up <laughs> that's my first and foremost and because it has been a wild ride it will continue to be a wild ride I think it's um, the the rate of change is, um, is speeding up um, and grab tight of those reins because um, it's it's fun and it's exciting 
Um, it's an industry to be in. Um, you can, you know, diversify any way you go. So if you immerse yourself in this technology world, you can go into big companies, small companies, startup companies, hardware companies, software companies, security companies, cloud companies, voice companies. I mean, there, there are, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning. It doesn't, it goes on and on. So just because you start someplace doesn't mean that's that you are forced to be in that swim lane. You are able to maneuver. Uh, things are so transferable when it comes to technology. So wherever that interest leads you, grab it and continue to be educated around it. Um, I would say that it's important to read the these trade rigs that are coming out on the industry sectors that interest you. I would say also that take advantage of so many free resources out there in terms of lectures and online learning. Take advantage of it for sure, uh, because it's out there for the taking and in a free and and you know companies train too. They want to cross train you as well. So any company that you get into, make sure that's that's one of the conversations you're having is securing training, um, formalized or other. How do you continue to learn? What what are some of your resources that you use? Yeah. Um, so my clients force my hand to continue learning. Uh, they bring they bring you know their complex um, scenarios to me, and I have to really be apprised of what the industry is doing and who's who's doing what in the industry. Well, I guess uh, there's a lot of people that do a lot of things, but do they do them well? So my job is to really um, stay apprised of players that are out there. So I have to have a wide knowledge base. Thankfully, I've got distributors that I work through that that provide these really wealth of knowledge and libraries that I can learn from. Um, but you got to, just because it's sitting before you doesn't mean that you're learning. You've got to actually seize that information. Um, but my customers bring these complexities. I then therefore have to learn and then also find the solutions and the providers and the suppliers that might do that work um, and then vet them very thoroughly. So those, some of those things, um, my hand is forced by my customer inquiry. How important, um, how important is that? How, how important do you think curiosity is in, in what you do? I mean, I think so much of what you know, you've been able to articulate is you almost trying to get the problem out of your customer figure out a way to articulate it so that you can put it into little sections that can actually be solved. Because I think everybody, particularly when it comes to technology and, and these companies that have, you know, a lot of traditional logistics, thinks their problems are unsolvable, that they're, they are theirs alone um, and need someone like you to try to put it into, into words that actually, you know, make it possible to understand. So, so how important do you think that is? Sales generally, I think that's, is that where the cat hangs out? Because they're super curious. <laughs> But uh, the although although it ended poorly for the cat, as yeah, I, I suppose I suppose it did. But they have nine lives, from what I understand. So that's sure. good news. <laughs> the yeah, so the the client makes these inquiries, and I have to continue to extract information out of them. And then you have to uh, cross reference that by doing stakeholder interviews throughout the organization, because just because this this department said that they need this, um, how can I be leveraged and shared? 
and um, expand it into other departments that may also have that same problem. So throughout the organization, it's super important to maintain that inquiry throughout because everybody has these different needs. And then you're, you're taking a look at these different vantage points of the same diamond, right? You're looking at it from all these different aspects. Um, and it looks different from one side from the other. Um, but then doing that research, um, the you have to be exemplary at finding those solutions um, and being able to vet for those as well that will marry those requirements to to the client requirements. And do you ever find that within a particular organization, if you're trying to solve a problem between, let's say, one department and the other, you might find some pushback from technologists internally or whoever internally that thinks, you know, this is my fiefdom and you're trying to essentially automate me out of a job. Um, and you run into that in technology more than, than a lot of other places because of lack of documentation and people just thinking that, the knowledge of how a particular process works within the organization is their job security. Yeah, I would say that technology is always the the threat to a lot of folks, right? They think that my job's going to be automated, it's going to be outsourced, it's going to be managed by others remotely. Um, I, and, and there's a little truth to that, I guess, but the reality is that if you are creating value as an employee uh, and thinking strategically as the as the company may command and demand, at that point, uh, you become super invaluable, right? You're invaluable to the organization because you're moving into a strategic role. Let let the other folks manage that stuff. You be the strategic thinker. So part of my job also in working with my clients is to navigate politics, navigate those fears. In some cases, it's true. I'm If they're managing an application and that's a legacy application and it's going away, to be, you know, rolled into Salesforce or something like this, yeah, there's a chance that you're going to lose your job unless you are demonstrating that you're a more strategic thinker within the organization. But generally, um, I help those companies to transition those people to their value because they have a ton of value of the history and uh, knowledge base within the in the body of the organization. So they have to be retained, um, and they should be retained if they're if they're good. I've said this in previous podcasts that the majority, uh, a, a significant majority of what I do for a living is psychology. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think it's important for our listeners to understand if you're interested in politics, if you're interested in communication, if you're interested in, in psychology, yes. solution selling in the technical space has all of that and more uh, to offer you. Yeah. So if you are a, uh, a um, you know, wishing that you were a marriage counselor, this is a good place for you. <laughs> and then marrying that with, with technology. Of what a perfect plug for our uh, last week's uh, podcast with, uh, with Dr. Albright. So Michelle, you've been in the space for a while. How do you, looking back at things and where we are today in the current state of uh, the economy and the pandemic, what's the biggest lesson learned in your professional opinion where we're at with the whole process? Stay nimble. I think that is, that's one of the findings through this process. Those companies that have prepared for remote workforce, those folks that um, understand that they are working in a global economy um, that need to be able to appeal globally, uh, they have to stay nimble and agile 
in this. They have to be able to scale rapidly or in some cases, um, you know, retract rapidly. So there are, there are configurations that I think and strategies that, that companies should and um, employ and those that have been successful through this um, have done a marvelous job of, um, of catering to their customers and, uh, and winning additional market share. So you mentioned work from home, which has kind of become the, the current norm. Is the future norm work from home, work from anywhere? Yes, it is. <laughs> I think we are already moving to that, right? I, I've worked with so many organizations in the last five years that say, I need to establish a remote workforce policy. How can I, um, because they want to be able to tap the best resources, maybe globally, maybe nationally, maybe regionally, um, but they, you know, some of those folks don't want to commute two hours into an office. So how do we get the best talent and have them working for our organization and make it viable uh, for them to be working from home? And how does that look and feel? And how do we monitor that? How do we measure that? Um, and how do we deploy for that? So those companies that are thinking in that mindset and have been for the last five years, this, this maneuver, although rapid, should not have been a surprise function, I guess, uh, having that remote workforce. Yeah, it was a surprise for a lot of them. I've seen like over the last 90 days, like the larger enterprise, particularly like Microsoft and Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, they are promoting the fact that, hey, you guys want to work and you can work from home. You're good till the end of the year. Don't question it. Just just stay home and work. I think Twitter said, Twitter, Twitter updated that to forever. You oh, never need to come in again. Yeah, imagine the number of people that are going to be moving out of uh, the Bay Area into Memphis, Tennessee, or Lincoln, Nebraska, or Wyoming, right? I mean, the or cost Kona, of Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Phil, for that blurb. <laughs> I, I, don't get you get don't get used to the peace, the bill. <laughs> yeah, these big organizations certainly, and they stand to benefit too from not having, um, you know, maybe the overhead of of a large. Uh, real estate, you know, endeavor there. So that, that is also a big thing. I think that's going to be a huge change in landscape uh, is the real estate market for sure, because you know, I've got plenty of customers that say, listen, I've got four floors in, in the city center and um, I don't need that any longer. I think I'll need one floor for all hands meetings or collaboration efforts uh, when we need to get together and gather, but generally, um, I've got a remote workforce at this point, and they're okay with it. And they're seeing success with it. Uh, they're being able to manage and monitor that, and they're they're probably getting more work. I know that working from home for me for all these years, there's more work conducted than um, when I would typically go into an office and have a conversation and break for lunch and go for coffee and this type of thing. There was actually more real work happening working from home than in an office. And so Absolutely. Yeah, what, a perfect, like, what a perfect segue to the life-work balance versus work-life balance where everyone is now on a 24-hour clock because everyone's sleeping in the office. You roll over, you're in your office, you roll back, you're in your bed. You know, that's not a good feng shui, by the way, to have your office in your sleep space. That's, it's, you know, it's not a good, it's not a good omen there. <laughs> I, live in, I live in Brooklyn. There's not, we don't yes, have any options, right? right. It's not, what am I don't do? face your bed then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm facing the window. My bed is, my bed is behind me. <laughs> 
So Michelle, uh, you mentioned a couple of very interesting points whereby people are working remotely and there's going to be more and more of it and it's going to become a norm. And then that opens up a lot of real estate. But then there's a challenge along that's going to come with it. We're going to run into bandwidth latency issue. Now, we've been talking about digital transformation for the last decade, if not longer. And the last 90 to 120 days, there has been this hockey stick effect and spiking in the adoption and potentially a little bit more of an understanding of what really digital transformation is. I used to call it hub digitization. You talk about digital transformation, you're not even half the way. That means that there's going to be a lot of enhancements into networks. Multiple questions here before. One, what are you seeing? Are people more receptive? That would be companies included. Are they more receptive to making this transition quicker, sooner than later? And with the access real estate that was open, will that real estate be utilized for potential data center sites, potential computing sites, potential sites for edge or micro edge infrastructures? Okay, that's a loaded question. That's a big one. I'll take the last one first on the the real estate piece. I think that that real estate organizations and REITs have been looking at how they convert these buildings because I think they understand that nothing's the same all the time. So it can't just be a, a single functioning building. In most of the buildings in uh, Seattle area, we see the first three to four floors of retail we see commercial for the next 15 floors, and then we see high-rise living for the next 10 floors above that. So those are convertible floors in many cases, right? We can um, lean on retail and we can add more of this type of space or that kind of space. So those are flex flex floors, if you will, in many cases. Um, and could they be used for edge computing? I think so, for sure. Uh, so that's actually a great model because the the 5G that's that's coming requires these smaller smaller bands that are going from building top to building top and um, being able to terminate in that particular area um, would be ideal. So having that those edge networks could be a really great remedy for some of those unutilized floors uh, that are not being kept for retail or commercial space. I think their hand was forced with remote workforce. Their hand will now be forced again for edge uh, security, uh, endpoint security. And so um, those are going to be the spends that they do in the next year as my estimation, but in terms of making big other sweeping moves, unless their hands are forced on that, I don't see, I see that there's they're going to ease into that, um, mostly because, listen, we had to just let go you know, 10% of our workforce or 20% of our workforce during this, this situation. Our business may have um, receded, um, and so they're not going to be making some of those maneuvers um, if they're uh, highly impacted financially. They'll, have, they'll do what they have to do, but it's, it's almost shifting sands. If we've had to release people, we're going to use that that um, you know, cost of, of their salary for this work effort. That's just because it's damage control. I would say that uh, a lot of companies are saying, you know what, we should just do a sweeping change and move all of our premise-based um, applications to the cloud right now. Um, we may, they may not have the talent in-house. Uh, still, the same issues still are 
prevailing here, where it's a talent, it's a time, it's a financial, um, and it's a nice to have or need to have uh, based on the growth or receding of that business. Well, that really goes into the leadership. So I can answer a couple of things there. One is money is cheap right now. Yes, it is. You've got a lot of people that are available. I mean, I mean, all the technologists are available to do some work. Yeah. It's a good time to transition. And an example really would be, if we get into defense, that's when we start making mistakes. That's when the blunders are made, and that's when you lose the games. Right now, it's a great opportunity to catch up. Get the projects done that you have been working for the last year, two, three years, that you said you couldn't get them completed because there was a lack of human capital. We have availability of those capital resources right now. Why is the unemployment rate that high? Hawaii right now is 41%. By the end of June, it's going to be over 52%. And if you look at nationally within the U.S., I mean, we are exceeding unemployment rates that we saw in the Great Depression. We're exceeding that for sure. I think what guys like Musk are doing, they're doing a continuation of work. They're like California. If you don't like us, we will move. He's accelerated the the build of the Gigafactory in Nevada. And if California doesn't cooperate, he's like, I'll build another one. I'll move all of my resources from Fremont, California to Reno. Yeah, or... Or wherever else, whoever is willing to work. Exactly. There's got to be, I I assume there's a balance between the regular human being and the Elon Musk on on two sides of of the equation. And I'll, I'll point to naming children as one indication that there's such a thing as too much of a good thing. But um, in general, it it goes back to confidence, which we talked about before, right? You have to have the confidence in what you're doing to look at this type of environment as an opportunity to kind of double down on what your original idea. But I think human nature inherently wants to recede and, and hunker down and, you know, essentially give, give up to, to fear um, and not move forward because you want to see where things are going to go when in reality things are going to go wherever you take them. That's where we want the next generation to understand that when your back up is up against the wall, when you run into a situation where, you know, you have the, uh, you know, it, it's easy to do well when everyone is doing well. What's hard is trying to um, have the confidence in your own um you know, your own thoughts, your own creativity, um, and, and move forward during times that are, you know, not, not as good or tumultuous or whatever. Yeah. And I would say that right now, I think we're going to be faced with, um, a lot of, uh, fallout, right? Where this, this year is going to be a lot of fallout. We're going to see companies that, that don't make it, that are filing bankruptcy, that are receding. And then we also see those that are surging. Um, I'll just use Zoom as, as an example of that, right? Um, and they've had their challenges. It's been widely publicized, but they're, they get a hand, all hands on deck to get that remedied so that they've got a, a dynamo product. Um, so that's what it's really going to take is the, all the all hands on deck to finding those solutions to to be that beacon out there. But I, I still see that, you know, just as Neville had said, there's a lot of funding out there. There's a lot of money and it's cheap. Um, I think we're going to still see a lot of merger and acquisition um, where, you know, equity investment um, in the next few years, I think it's going to be big. Um, we're already still seeing lots of funding, especially in the biotech um, fields right now. Um, and, and as we start rolling out and really maturing machine learning, AI, IoT, 5G, all those good things, 
the autonomous car, <laughs> all those things. Or uh, the artificial autonomous car. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, the, I think the, that's, that's really going to be at the forefront right now for the next couple of years is, is those, those companies that are trying to say, okay, who are we? How are we going to proceed? And how do we show leadership in that, just as you had indicated in the bill? Yeah, I think, I mean, you gave a perfect example of Zoom and, and a great example of leadership as well. They have the same challenges as others did. Uh, Zoom basically was competing with the likes of Cisco, yet Cisco is struggling with their meeting platforms. Microsoft has actually taken it seriously. Microsoft is working on building a platform close enough to Zoom. So it just shows to tell you that if you take the risk and that would be a calculated risk, then you will excel and you got to stay on that path no matter what. As long as that's you stay the, on that path. That's the thing that's so interesting, right? Zoom as a small, nimble company that, you know, everyone was excited about a couple of years ago because, you know, it was kind of a, a unique interface and it was, you know, it was an easy adoption rate. There wasn't a huge um, uh, impediment to, to utilizing it. But you have those large companies because Zoom's, Zoom's offering was, it was so easy to adopt um, and frankly, to adapt to, you know, these other environments, whether it be school, like my kids are using it, or ballet, like my daughter is using it, or, you know, these types of podcasts, that you now have the Microsofts and, and the Googles and all those guys ch chasing Zoom and trying to keep up with what they've been able uh, to develop because, you know, they were, you know, these younger folks that were creative in thinking that this is a problem that needed to be solved. And I think if you look if you forward look and you look at a lot of the applications that something like Zoom is being used for, there are probably elements of it that will be manipulated where you create specific applications to, say, e-learning, specific applications to telemedicine that are going to be, you know, an, an adaption of what you have with Zoom that don't even exist yet, which is going to take, you know, the younger generation and a word that typically isn't used when referring to technologists, which is creativity. But that understanding that, you know, it takes a creative mind to understand and be able to articulate that a problem exists and that, you know, you can create a tools to solve that problem. And then, you know, the sky's the limit. That's why applications and have been just the fastest moving speedboat around on the on the lake. Uh, that app development, we, we all carry probably on average 150 applications on our device, um, and we use you know maybe 20 a day, and it's it's pretty amazing. But that that nimbleness, that um, creativity, is something that we kind of weren't permitted. Like we had to use, coding was rigid and inflexible and it didn't look pretty and it didn't feel pretty and it didn't have much interface. But when we started doing these, you know, graphical user interfaces, the GUI, that that was a big deal. And that's when people said, how can I, I'd like to be able to consume this, but can you make it consumable? And now folks are, it's just second nature to this generation to be able to develop that. That's become a norm. That the biggest winners are going to be those companies like um, like a Microsoft or Amazon that's really deploying um, big big applications to the edge uh, that that were not super readily available by way of uh, mobile mobile deployment today. On that note, what do you think are the the biggest challenges that we should start prepping for uh, in the next three to five years? 
one of the things that we haven't talked about because all of those technologies I think will be upon us, right? Whether it's three years, five years, or norms is in 10 years. Um, I think the real question um, that we should be asking ourselves is the ethics around those technologies, right? I mean, we've, we've developed technologies almost as a reactive measure, like, hey, I need a, I've got to solve a problem and let's get a technology to do that for us um, and, and then optimize it. Uh, but the reality is that we're starting to develop we can conduct our business um, in the way that we need to and want to now with the technologies that are here or right upon us um, in the next three years. I really feel that at this point, it's sort of like, do we really need to do that? Is this an ethical challenge as we develop these additional programs or additional technologies? So I think that their ethics has to be coming into play at some point in time and people have to know that it's for the public good. So that's one of the things that, that I'll, I'll kind of turn on its ear, your question, because I think um, the ethics question needs to be a lot more pronounced than it has been. So it's the humanization and the ethical information technology platform that we need to work on. Yeah. Have you created a buzzword? I think you should submit that one to, uh, to Gartner. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle, what do you get excited about? There's a lot of good stuff that's happened in the last five to 10 years Mm -hmm. from iPhone 1.0 to iPhone 11.0 now, where we've got computing at our fingertips. What gets you excited? What What keeps you going? You know, again, my my background and my passion really lies with uh, finding solutions, technology solutions. So the technology is going to be there. I will learn about it and my clients will demand it. But the, the fun is really understanding the application which is going to be used by the client um, and what they're trying to achieve. So um, I don't know that there's any specific technologies that I'm super psyched about. I'm not an early adopter. That's I kind of follow trend line, I guess, more so than the bleeding edge or cutting edge uh, aspect of technology. So this is a perfect example of how we lead. We are very, very reactive. We should have thought through this and about it long time ago. Security just did not become a concern today. It's always been a concern. Now, in your capacity, as you are working with these folks, and like Phil mentioned earlier, I mean, a part of what we do are we are psychologists. We are like the Tony Robbins of data center and technology. We're motivating people. We are the change agents. What are you coming across in that space with with folks that you're dealing with, the must in the industry, and how are you telling them to be ready for tomorrow? So... Doing these um, these assessments, and that, that is such a key to uh, any company's success, I would say. Uh, you know, historically, people bought appliances to help mitigate security. Then they moved to the cloud and, and thought, oh, well, since I'm moving it there, it must be protected. Um, and, and so now they've got this data center presence, they've got a cloud presence, they've got their software as a service presence, they've got network that they've got to secure. So we've got all these disparate pieces. And this posture has changed enormously in the last 10 years um, with with clients and their migration to cloud. 
uh, and the consumption of um, software as a service. So with that, getting your arms around it and being able to assess the entire picture. Let's stand away from the forest and be able to see the trees here um, and be able to identify where those vulnerabilities are and having a plan. So it doesn't, you, you can't protect every piece of data and nor should you uh, because it's just too costly. It's too, it's too intense and you could spend every dollar and every minute and every resource protecting your organization. The reality is, is that um, it needs to be architected so that the important things are, uh, you know, at a zero trust and the other things can be trusted. So in many cases, I find myself going in and working with organizations to do this complete assessment as to what their security posture looks like today, how it's changed and how it will change and what they need to be ready for. So getting an understanding of their baseline understanding and then being able to know what that looks like from the outside and then also from the inside uh, because those are two very different um, fronts that need to be addressed. And then on top of that, finding the right solutions that, um, that, are, that are not disparate, that, that work hand in hand, and um, being able to monitor so when threats do come up that they can be addressed promptly instead of uh, just you know, rifling through logs for uh, you know, droning on for 12 hours a day. You can't, nobody can, can do that. Nobody should do that uh, when there's monitoring and, and uh, ways that can be efficient in that process. But also knowing what your response plan is going to be, right? When you have an incident, how are you going to respond? How are you going to be able to turn to be able to um, identify the threats, um, be able to hunt them down, close up the gaps and move forward in conducting business and assure that you're not on the front of the Wall Street Journal as well. And those are some of the things that, that are really key to addressing that security posture. So one of the things that I came out of it for me was the fact that you've got to be able to step back from the shell that you're in. Yes. You've got to look at the bigger picture and you've got to evaluate the entire floor plan. Um, you can't go in with the fact that I'm going to fix this problem because that problem might solve that immediate issue but there's a bunch of other associations with that problem okay. that you probably might not be able to capture. So step back, evaluate, and then put a strategy in place. And that really goes back to what we talked about earlier. You mentioned confidence. You, you mentioned the ability to lead. You mentioned that you've got to have the imagination and, and, and the leadership to, to look at everything that's happening in your environment, in your organization. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you on that. And being able to tap these outside resources, like and having that objective point of view, right? I, I see a myriad of different organizations in myriad of different verticals, which are cross-pollinating the solution set, right? What, what's used in healthcare could be used in other applications and other verticals. And uh, it just takes a creative mind to think that. And, and for me to challenge uh, those leaders also with bringing forth hey, have you thought about doing these type of things? Have you thought about maneuvering in this type of way, um, taking on this type of technology to solve that type of problem? And at some point, you need to have these outside objective resources um, that are going to assist. In, and a lot of times, a board of advisors or directors might be able to serve that role. But 
Um, everybody has usually the same mission, so you need to have that objective outside resource to be brought in to um, to help flank that uh, that leadership as well. I guess that begs one question, and then and then I'll switch gears. How many of these solutions that you're putting in place are are essentially the same or very similar to one another? Are, are they really all that different, or 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 are you utilizing essentially the same the same bits and pieces? I don't know if you know the artist Surratt, um, that he's an impressionist painter um, that uses all those little dots. He a process called pointillism, right, where they use the series of dots. And um, much like um, taking a look at that, he uses a lot of the same colors in a lot of his artwork, but it looks very different, right? It, it, it's using more green here, more blue there, more you know, earth tones here. And that's exactly what's happening. Certainly there are technologies that are in silos um, or in their verticals, uh, whether it be network or cloud or security or uh, voice applications, hosted environments. Um, but they, they consume um, varying degrees of that. And it becomes this patchwork of, of a solution. So do you see replication of solutions being deployed? Of course you do. But they take more, they use it in different ways. Uh, I think that's, that's where the rubber meets the road is that they may be using those technologies in different ways um, uh, compared to their competitor, so. Makes a lot of sense. All right, I'm gonna shift gears. Listeners who are, you know, again, gravitate towards the next generation, people that wanna know, you know, how to make an impact. What, what are the final takeaways you, th- you would share with them? I say follow passions. You never work a day in your life if you're working in something you're super interested in. So there's going to be trials. There's going to be politics. There's going to be letdowns. But you'll know better next time. It, it well rounds you. Let that let that hone you. Don't be afraid of failure. I you know. My goodness, how many times do you have to fail? It's the fact that you got back up and and utilize that failure knowledge to be better the next time. I I would say technology is going to be a wild ride for the next foreseeable future for forevermore. Uh, I think they'll still continue to come up with ideas and value and and it's really fun. It changes all the time, so it's never stagnant. Buckle up, come on, <laughs> the water I form. <laughs> I think we found we found the tagline. Buckle up. Um, anyway, this has been great, uh, Nabil. Thank you very much, Michelle. This was absolutely phenomenal. It's and to, to, to add to your final words, the word fail, first attempt in learning more. That's right. <laughs> this has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.